0: just a little weird to gather together, isn't it? It's a bit strange. It's good to to gather here on the ancestral lands of the Coast Salish people, the Musqueam, um, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. And um, it is good to be in this space together. I've not been to Reality Church before, but I have been to St. John's Shaughnessy in the courtyard before only for a live nativity play which included an actual donkey who was not into it? He was—he was not having it. Uh, but the rest of the play went really well. But he was being a donkey about it. Um, I uh, yeah. I'm going to talk about. I know you've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to shift things up a little bit today and talk about something—a story from the Gospel of John. But first, I'd like to show you a picture. This is one of my favorite pictures uh, of all time. This is a picture, I don't know how well you can see it, I know it's a little bit uh, light there, but this is a picture of my son and I. And my family, uh, had, we saved up a bunch of money and we took our kids, I have four kids and, and a wife, and we went to a long journey and part of it was in Italy, in Florence. And this is one of the many art museums that I loved and my children tolerated in Florence. Uh, it's called the Uffizi, has anyone been? Yeah, a few people have been to the Ephesus. Okay, very good. It's a beautiful place. It's a little bit overwhelming. It's the storehouse of the de Medici family's art plundering of uh, many generations. And so there's lots and lots of art. And this picture is beautiful. If you can sort of see what it is, it, it just looks like a picture of a father and a son holding hands, walking through a beautiful art gallery, enjoying incredible art. And that is kind of what it is. And people have responded to that very, very well in terms of saying, oh, that's just such a loving picture between you and your son. And, and that is true. Um, <laughs> But there's another truth to this picture. This picture actually needs a little bit of context and subtext because my son, uh, who was about eight years old at the time, um, he is somebody who lives life to the full. He embraces everything about life. He, he, he sucks it down to the marrow. And, and the way that he shows his exuberance is by running and jumping. And he was doing this all throughout Italy. And he was doing this all throughout the Uffizi. And that was a problem because you, can't re- you can see sort of on the sides, there's some sculptures. And there's no walls around the sculptures. There's not a moat. There should be. There should be at least a rope. But there's nothing between that priceless sculpture and that child. If I were to call, uh, give a title to this picture, I would call it Priceless Art and Reckless Child. And so my holding of his hand as we walked through the Uffizi was an act of love. Yes, an act of let's enjoy this art together, but it's also let's not destroy this art, which I cannot pay for because it's literally priceless. We walked through this museum, the Uffizi, and it's again, there are thousands and thousands of pieces of art. It's too much. Too much art. And I love art, but it's too much. You can't even see it. You just kind of walk through and you're just being a, a, just assaulted by art. And and you get up to what you think is the end. It's at the top and there's this cafeteria and it's just bedlam. And, and then you, have to, you, you buy the food, but you're not allowed to eat the food there unless you pay a special price to actually eat it there. And You can go outside and the pigeons attack you. It's a whole scene. It's an ordeal. And at this point, um, we were already kind of two weeks into the journey. I was very tired. I had been monitoring my son for a long time. And, uh, and I was done. I was done with the Uffizi. I was done with art just in general. But what I didn't know is we had another half of the Uffizi to go. And there was no way out. They had set it up where you couldn't get out aside from going through all the rooms. So we were speeding through the most beautiful art you know, that you've know you ever seen. Just, but I had heard that there was this one piece of art in the Uffizi that I desperately wanted to see. And, uh, and we hadn't seen it, and I thought, I probably just missed it. I don't care. I need to get out of this place. I don't like the de Medicis. I didn't like them before. I like them less now. Um, let's just get out of this place. But then we came upon this room, one of the last rooms. And in this room was this painting. And it's hard to see, but you may, be, you may be familiar with it. This is a painting by an artist named Caravaggio. And the name of the painting is The Incredulity St. Thomas painted in roughly 1601-1602 in a very new style and it's one of my favorite paintings in the world and there is such a difference between seeing a painting in a book or seeing a painting like this on the screen and seeing the painting in the flesh as it were it is staggering I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you have seen a, a, maybe a sculpture maybe maybe Michelangelo's David which was in another museum in Florence and you see a picture of it, and you go, wow, that's amazing. And when you go to Florence, there's a, a big uh, area where there are these outdoor sculptures, and there's a copy of Michelangelo's David. And when you see that, you go, wow, that's amazing. Until you see the actual thing in the other museum, and you go, oh, that's really nothing. <laughs> this is the real deal. This is amazing. My kids, this is a bit of an aside, but my kids have become a little bit... Um, Impossible for their friends and their teachers when they've done a little bit of history after going to Italy. And they say, oh, here's a picture of this. And they'll go, yeah, I've seen it. And everyone's like, yeah, we get it. You went to Italy. Stop bragging about it. But it really is something because, because the painting is not just, you know, here it's 2D, but a painting is actually 3D. There's texture. There's, there's life to it that you can't see unless you're standing in front of it. And I just stood in front of this in, in surprised joy. I didn't, re- I didn't remember that it was even going to be there. Just in awe of this, this painting. And the painting that Caravaggio did here, it's done in what was called a, a new style, a new realism. Um, where before, when portraits were done of people or pictures, it, it was kind of a stylized, almost ideal picture of somebody where all of the, the, um, the kind of rough spots are removed and everything is very, very smooth. Caravaggio did this in a very new style where you can see all these very earthy details. You wouldn't be able to see it here so much, but St. Thomas's fingernails have dirt under them which is really fascinating. And, and there's a torn seam in his shirt right on the shoulder there. That doesn't have to be there. But but Caravaggio said, well, that happens to shirts. There's a torn seam in the shirt. Um, there are marks on Jesus' chest. and These people, this, this, this new realism, they're painted as real people. Physically real. Emotionally real. It's not just a a blank canvas. There's actually something going on. What Caravaggio is trying to do is display the full humanity of the people in his pictures. And these real people, especially these three, are intensely curious about the wounds of Jesus. Jesus' body in this painting is particularly interesting because obviously the, the wounds are still there. But there's also something else that a lot of people don't notice, but it's really key. In in every painting of Jesus up to this point, pretty much there had been a halo. But there's no halo on Jesus in this painting. And art historians suggest that what Caravaggio was trying to do was indicate that, that Jesus, in his resurrected appearance, and this is post resurrection, was not simply a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He had a real body in the flesh. And he takes Thomas's hands. Notice he's holding Thomas' hand. And he's guiding it into his wound to experience that the wound is real. It's not simply a story. This is an embodied depiction of of reality and faith. Um, I don't do commercials very well, but I want to give you a little bit of one. We're doing something, 24-7 Prayer in Vancouver is doing something coming up at the end of May, May 27th. Uh, we're having a big gathering of prayer. And again, it's one of these things where we haven't been able to gather uh, in, in large groups for a long time i don 't know if you 've had any experience of like going to a concert or a game or anything, and you 're just like, "Is this allowed? Is this legal? Are we okay? Are we all going to die here like it 's a, it's a, it's a weird thing you know this has all gone deeply into us, and we 've actually over zoom and, and screens we 've lost a bit of that disembodied sense of each other you know you don 't know if you should shake someone 's hand or bump fist them or hit them with the foot or whatever. Our faith is really meant to be embodied it has to be body soul and spirit and look even before all this stuff even before all the zoom stuff we still had that problem that we kind of thought that the body was one thing and the spirit was something else entirely and and our faith is really about the spirit but actually it's about our body and our soul and our spirit. It's about the whole self of who we are and a lot of the problems that we found ourselves in in uh, Christianity as people of faith, I think, are because we have forgotten that God cares about our body. God cares about our soul. God cares about our emotions. And so we're going to have this, this whole day of prayer. But the focus will be body, soul, and spirit prayer. And everybody is invited. There's a leader's time in the morning. And in the, in the evening, uh, there'll be hopefully, I, we think maybe even a thousand people gathered together to, to talk about embodied prayer and then to pray together. So you are welcome to that. That'll be downtown. And there's uh, some... I gave you some stuff, uh, little pamphlets you can take a look at. We'd love you to be there. Um, but it really is about this. It's about this... Like, can we touch this thing? Can we experience this thing emotionally? Does God care about us as whole beings or is it just our, our kind of disembodied, spiritualized prayer stuff? That matters. I want to read this scripture to you. It'll be up on the screen as well. This is from John 20, and this is the story upon which this painting is based. John 20. You might be familiar with it. It says Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus had appeared to his other disciples just previous to this. But but Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So that's kind of gross. There was more of a comfort level with that maybe than than there is now for us. But that's kind of gross. But he says, unless I see that, I won't believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God! Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So what do we know about this Thomas guy? One thing we know about Thomas is that he was a twin. Pretty much every time he is mentioned... In the Gospel of John in particular, it says Thomas, who was a twin. Thomas called Didymus. He was a twin. Kind of making the point. Which, if you're a twin, I don't know if there's any twins in the room. That'd probably get a bit annoying. Okay, yeah, 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 i got a brother, I've got a sister, whatever, I've been a twin. But he's called a twin, and that's, that's sort of emphasized, and again, it's a bit strange. I think there's a reason for it. I think he's called a twin because there's actually two aspects of Thomas's personality. I think he was actually a twin, but there's also two aspects of his personality which are really highlighted, certainly in John's Gospel. Um, in this bit, we, we see Thomas go, no, unless I see this, I won't believe. So what do we call Thomas? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. That seems a little unfair, right? Because Thomas could be called some other things. There's another story that we we read about Thomas. This is in John 11. If we go there. Then after this, he said to his disciples, so this is Jesus saying to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Because uh, Lazarus, he had heard that Lazarus, his friend, had died or was dying. And he said, so let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now, like literally just now, seeking to stone you. And you are going there again? Like they're like, that's a bad idea. Like don't do that. Don't go there again. Don't go there. Because they were just trying to throw big rocks at you to kill you. Don't go there again. Then Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. That's hardcore. That's really like you should. He should have the nickname Thomas the Bold, Thomas the Devoted, Thomas the Loyal, Thomas the Hardcore. But no, you doubt once (laughs) for two thousand years, written in a book. You're the doubting Thomas. It's not fair. Why? How did Thomas move from this person, let us also go that we may die with him, to I'm not believing anything you guys say? How did he move from one to the other? Well, Thomas is disappointed. Not just disappointed, Thomas is shattered. He's ruined. Behind every cynic is a disappointed idealist. A frustrated romantic. Have you ever just like believed something, been so optimistic and just, yes, this is going to happen, and it didn't happen? What happens to your trust levels later? Don't they kind of go down? Just a little bit? Well, Thomas is shattered by this. Because the cross was real to Thomas. We, you know, we've got big glowing crosses here. Um, this would be madness. I mean, aside from just the electricity which would blow their mind, but this would be madness to anybody in the first century. Any first century Palestinian Jewish person would be, yeah, I've seen thousands of these. Literally, I've seen thousands of these lining the streets, lining the roads of, of people who've been crucified, just brutally killed in the worst possible way. This was real to Thomas. Jesus had died in this way. It was not a metaphor. It was not a spiritual lesson. He knew that it was real, horrible, and final. You did not come back from crucifixion. The dream was dead, and he knew it. Doubt, doubting Thomas. It's not the right word. The name of this painting that I showed you is the incredulity of Saint Thomas. So if you don't know that word, here's a cool word you can use at cocktail parties. Impress. Um, Uh, People. Incredulity is a great word. It's the opposite of like credulous. Credulous means someone who just believes anything. Like, oh, yeah, sure, you told me that, I'll be like, but people on the internet, you know, that's just, I'm just credulous. I'll believe, I won't believe this, but I'll believe this whole other thing over here. It's just people who believe whatever. They're totally naive. That's credulous. Incredulous is someone who goes, no way. I will not believe that. There's no way. It's not just, "Mm, I'm not so sure about this one. It's, no, I'm incredulous. No, I will not believe. Some people say, oh yeah, the reason that these stories, these miracle stories get through in the Bible is because all the people back then were just credulous. They just believed whatever. You know, oh yeah, they believed in a virgin birth. Yeah, they knew how babies were made. (laughs) They weren't credulous. They understood. That's why they wrote it down. That's why they call it a miracle. This doesn't happen. You know, if if people just came back from the dead all the time, he'd be like, oh, Jesus is back. Oh, no big deal. No, they knew this was a big deal. They knew that this was a miracle. But Thomas was like, no, I will not believe that because I saw him. I saw how this works. I know that he died and my dreams are shattered. Thomas isn't just some cynic who should have known better. Thomas isn't just some guy who was too faithless to believe in the reports. That's the problem when we just say, Oh, yeah, doubting Thomas, oh, that person's just a doubting Thomas. That means they should believe something, but they don't. But Thomas isn't that. He shouldn't believe this. Why should he believe this? He had every human reason to be totally incredulous, to call the reports absurd, outrageous, even offensive. That's offensive. If someone who I love died, and people came back and said, "Oh no, no, they came back," if that's not true, that's offensive. That's even close to abuse. Don't say that. Thomas is like, I don't. I'm not going to believe that. And there's this line that says, "Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence." It's a line that's actually used usually by um, by atheists to say oh, all these these. Claims about God require pretty extraordinary evidence. You can't just make an extraordinary claim without extraordinary evidence. And, and Thomas is kind of on board. He says, unless I see in his hands the nail marks and put my finger in them, unless I place my hands inside the wound to decide I will never believe. The door is shut to his belief. Barring a personal revelation. I want to ask the question, uh, church, are we, are we really reckoning with our own doubt and incredulity? Do we really allow that or do we kind of shut the door to that stuff because we're kind of afraid of it? Uh, my son who I showed you earlier, he has lived since the age of 20 months with a life-threatening disease. Uh, he's 16 now. And it's not better... In fact, in many ways, it's, it's worse. And so he's had to live from, from the age that he knew, that he knew anything. That if I do certain things or don't do certain things, I will die. And the chances are that my life is going to be shortened regardless. And that impacts him significantly, the way that he lives his life. And, and I pray, I promise you, I pray uh, daily that he would be healed and that all kids with this particular disease would be healed and that there'd be uh, medical marvels that would happen and that he could not just manage this, but he'd actually be healed. And, and there have been moments where it was he's, he's even coming up just weeping, going, I believe, I believe that I'm being healed, that I'm going to be healed by God of this disease. And, and we just wait. And so far, 16 years in, he's not. Do you think that causes some doubt? Maybe even a little incredulity? I remember somebody once uh, who, who came up and was very confident in their healing prayers. And, and I'm very careful with my healing prayers. I believe, but I'm careful with them about what I claim. But this person was not being very careful. And they said, look, I just know. I just, he hadn't met my family yet, but he'd heard. And he goes, I just know that your daughter is going to be healed. I said, well, I'm really thankful that my daughter will be healed. It's my son, actually, who has the, the sickness, but I'm glad that my daughter will be healed, but it's actually my son. You know? And, and like, that doesn't help. <laughs> that, that level of faith, but getting the wrong kid doesn't particularly help in some of this stuff. I mean, I think that we've got to be honest about our, where we're at with this stuff. Is this thing real? What if healing never comes? I've been in lots of situations. I've seen people healed. I've also seen people not healed when it makes all kinds of sense that they should be. I've seen that happen. If we can't admit these moments of doubt, of wondering, I wonder if we've really risked everything on the resurrection. I wonder if we're actually just kind of Holding things back. I wonder if we've really staked everything on the impossibility, not just of Jesus' death and resurrection, but of God's saving love and mercy for us. Are we holding something in reserve? Do we have a backup plan to faith? I want to say if we're holding anything back if we're, and if we're not willing to actually reckon with our doubt and our pain and our worry and our, and our incredulity, then I think we're probably holding those in reserve just in case. We're saying, I don't really trust God even with that, with my whole self. We're too afraid to put that out there because what if, what if God fails? Or what if this thing doesn't happen? What if Jesus didn't come back? Remember Thomas, he says, let us also go that we might die with him. I mean, he, he was in as far as he could be. He was in, he was given it all as far as he could. It took the revelation of the risen Christ in front of him that he could touch to take him further, but he was as far as he could go. And he was utterly disappointed unless we risk total disappointment, complete shattering. I think we're probably holding something in reserve. It's got to be all or nothing. Has anyone ever been rock climbing? Has anyone ever done that thing where you go, uh, um, what's it called now? You go down abseiling? Yeah? That's a fun thing to do. You have to really trust those ropes, yeah? You, they say, okay, you put on the harness, you've got the rope. Sorry, this isn't in the notes, I'm making it up here. But um, you, gotta, you hold it. You have this thing and you just hold it. And they say, as long as you hold it here and put your hand tight, you won't fall. And you look down the cliff and you're like, that's a long way. That's like that's not going to work <laughs> if I fall. And so you have to kind of let go of the rope a little bit and then step off the edge and then you're walking down a rock and you you can stop yourself just by doing this. That's amazing. But you've got to trust that rope. You've got to trust your hand. You've got to trust the harness. You've got to trust the people who made the knots. You've got to trust the rock where it's tied around. There's a lot of trust. And I was determined. The first time I did this, I was determined I was going to trust this. And I remember getting on the edge, and I, just, I trusted it so much, I leaned right back, and I was actually sitting on the rock where my feet were going up, and my butt was on the rock. And I was like, I really trust this, but I'm in trouble now. I can't do anything. To me, like that's... I, We've got to trust even more. Our faith has got to be, I'm giving everything. I'm just, yeah, whatever I got. I'm giving this. And if I fall, I fall. But I'm trusting this to the uttermost. Blessed are those who believe but have not seen. Jesus says that to Thomas, doesn't he? He says, you you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Is he giving Thomas a burn here? Is he insulting him? Is this a rebuke? I don't know, maybe, but, but I don't, I'm not worried about that. I'm actually more interested in the fact that I think that this was necessary. This word was necessary. Blessed are those who believe when they haven't seen. Because we, right here, right now, right? We can't see the physical, wounded body of Jesus. Because Jesus ascended into heaven bodily. We can't see that now. So we believe in the testimony of those who did see. And who passed it on. This is what it says in 1 John uh, 1, 1-4. That which was from the beginning. This is how John opens his letter to these people. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So that reality that was before everything, we've heard it. We've seen with our eyes. We've looked upon and we have touched with our hands. This is, we are the disciples. We are apostles because we've seen Jesus touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim it to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard. Do you notice a couple things showing up again and again? We saw it. We heard it. We touched it. This is Jesus. We saw it. We heard Him. We touched Him. We proclaim it also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. They're saying this thing, this person we saw, we heard, we touched, this is the key to all fellowship. This embodied reality. It's not just some philosophy. It's not just the logos. It's not just some idea. It's actually embodied, encapsulated in a person who we saw and heard and touched. We saw his wounds. We touched them. Thomas, the twin, he did it. He put his hands in the wound. It was gross. We saw it. And we want you to know this. So that you could be in fellowship with us. This is the absolute source and foundation of our entire fellowship that the word of life became flesh and dwelt among us and died and had wounds. Do we believe this testimony with everything that we have? Look, we have actually a little bit more than this, which is great. In a very real sense, we do have more to offer than just words in an incredulous world. We have to reckon with that. The world is incredulous. The world will say, no way, I don't believe. What do we have to offer? We, just take a look around just for a second, look at somebody, try and look at them in the eyes and not get freaked out. Just <laughs> Some people are not doing it. It's okay. You don't have to. I'm not, I'm not your boss. We right here are part of the body of Christ on earth. I know we say that again, that feels very spiritualized. It's not meant to be. We are the body of Christ on earth. This is part of that body here and now. Part of that witness. Part of the extraordinary witness of extraordinary events. Can we let the world see and touch our wounds? Can we let them hear hear our hope and experience of the resurrected Christ? If we are holding that stuff back, the world will rightly continue to be incredulous. We have to say this is us in our wounds and this is us in our hope. It is so instructive to me that Jesus' resurrected body still had wounds. That is so important. And it is so important for us to admit that the church has wounds. And I know we'll all say that, oh yeah, we're just a messed up. Oh, we're just just a beautiful mess. I don't think we really believe it. We say it. I don't think we really believe it because we don't want to show it to anybody. We don't even want to show it to ourselves. We don't want to see it in the mirror. We definitely don't want to show it to the person sitting in the chairs beside you. We definitely don't want to show it to the world. Not the real thing. I work with lots of people in recovery. Lots and lots of people in drug and alcohol recovery and all kinds of other recoveries. And you know, the starting point is they have to stand up and say, hello, my name is blank and I am a blank. Every single time they want to talk, every single time in a group meeting that they want to talk, they have to admit their deepest temptation and sin. What if that was the case in church? That any time John ever wanted to say anything, he first had to get up and say, hello, my name is John. And I am a serial gambler or whatever his things may be. And I say that. I mean, I, I'm joking around. I don't know if it's, maybe it maybe is gambling. gambler. I don't know. But like, he's not different. None of us are different. You know, why would we imagine that? we We all have our wounds. We all have things that have happened to us that hurt us and we're acting out of that fear and pain. We all have our stuff where we've added to the fear and the pain of the world and we're just not willing to be honest about it in part because we don't believe the world can handle it. Probably they can't, but they need to see it. Can we handle it? church, can we handle being wounded together? Can we handle showing each other our actual wounds so that we might live into the actual hope? If I'm hiding my wounds, if I'm trying to keep them all hidden and quiet, I'm not going to really present them to the body of Christ for healing. Can we actually be honest and vulnerable with our wounds? Because an unbelieving world does need to see that we aren't some imagined, idealized version of something we're real we're embodied we have flesh we have pain there is this theology but where is the church born what was the moment of the, the church's birth so to speak and some people will kind of say well it was the, the moment where mary said let it be unto me as you have said when, when the, the angel said you're going to have a baby and, and that she's literally the first person to accept jesus into her life Um, That's a beautiful theology, beautiful understanding. Others will say it was at the point of Pentecost when the Spirit came and filled the, the, the disciples who were waiting in fear in the upper room and then they go and gush out. Another kind of birth, they gush out into the streets. But there's another theology which says that it was the moment where the spear was put into Jesus' side and the blood came out and the water came out and it hit the mud. And that's the moment where the church is born because it's the blood and the water of Jesus hitting the mud of the earth. We are born from the wounds of Christ. And I love that imagery. I love that idea that Thomas is asking, can I put my finger in to the very reality of this embodied Savior? That this is what the church is. It's the blood and the water and the mud. That's us. And then we're filled by the Spirit of God. We're still bloody and watery and muddy. But the Spirit is doing something in us and renewing all of that stuff. Can we present our wounds and our hope to the world? That, I want to suggest to you, church, is our greatest possible witness. I want to end with a uh, a poem written by St. Teresa of Avila. You may have heard it. I'm not sure. There's a song that's been based on it recently. And uh, she, she writes this. She said, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which He looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which He walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which He blesses all the world. You're about to share in communion, yeah? We're sharing in communion today, which we look at. We, you know, we call this the sharing the body of Christ, which is. Beautiful. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says when you're about to share this, um, you need to discern the body. You've made a mistake. You've done something really wrong because you're actually the rich are eating over here and the poor are eating over here and you're eating it wrong. You're, You're actually causing division in this thing that's supposed to be uniting yourself with one another, fellowship with one another in the bonds of Christ. And you're eating it wrong because you haven't discerned the body. And that doesn't mean they haven't tried to figure out what the bread is. That means that they have not loved each other well. They have not looked. They have not regarded each other well, and the world looking at them will not see that they love each other well in their woundedness, in their division, in their brokenness. We're, are we a divided church right now in the world? Has there been any division over the last two years? You haven't probably experienced it. I don't know if anyone's been on the internet, but it's like it's a mess, right? Or, or around your dinner table, or around you know Christmas, whatever. It's a mess. We're a mess, and that's okay. It's okay to go we're a mess so long as we go and Christ can redeem that too. Think for a moment. We're going to take communion, but think for a moment about that person, that brother or sister in Christ who you want nothing to do with, who has wounded you. And I'm not telling you to do anything particularly about that. I'm not saying you have to go and talk to that person even necessarily because I don't know those situations, but can you present
1: that wound at least... Jesus and say I am wounded there or I have wounded there before you participate in in eating the bread
0: and drinking the wine and saying I am part of the body of Christ Um, I'm just I want to sing actually over you I want to sing that song over you if you can you can close your eyes or open them as long as whatever you want but before we take part in communion together I'd
1: like to just sing that that poem Christ has no body now but Yours. No hands, no feet on earth but Yours. Yours are the eyes with which He sees. Yours are the feet with which He walks. Yours are the hands with which He blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Christ has no body now but Yours. No hands, no feet on earth but Yours. Yours are the eyes with which He sees. Yours are the feet with which He walks. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands.